Welcome to Reverberate, a podcast series of amazing stories from around the world about when music sparked a moment. I'm Chris Michael. I got tortured so badly, I felt that I was almost dying that day. There was a special force army officer jumping on my head with his military boots. I just heard my my inner sound telling to me, like, no, Rami, not now. Don't let them kill you. And I did all my best to stay silent the whole eight hours. Silence sometimes could be the most powerful sound ever. In the spring of 2011, the world was gripped by an unfolding revolution across North Africa and the Middle East. The Arab Spring had already toppled the leader of Tunisia. Now, attention was turning to Egypt, a much bigger and more strategically important country. Could the same thing happen here? Protesters were out on the streets in force and came from all different walks of life. But they all had one thing in common. The hate to the police. Because of the treatment that we've been seeing from them all our life, even if you're not a person that got any direct personal harm from the police, but another person in your family, or in your neighborhood, or a friend, or somebody that you know. At the time, Rami Essam was a student in Mansoura in the north of Egypt. He was kind of a rangy young dude with a surly edge, who spent a lot of his time hanging around on the streets, getting into fights, many of which he'll now freely admit he started himself. Like every other person in Egypt, Rami had seen police violence firsthand. There's no one single person that that never so violent from the police against the people. You just have to deal with it. Rami had always been musical. He'd been playing the guitar since he was a kid, and as a student, he liked to write love songs. But they never really scratched his itch. I remember that the first band that Shadi was listening to, my brother, um, was Linkin Park. And... Um, I will never forget the first moment I listened to Chester when he was screaming. And I was like, wow, what is this? Is it like singers can scream like this? And I was was so happy. And this was the huge turning point in, in my life about music and also about the anger and the fight life that I mentioned in the beginning. Because simply rock music was the best way ever to control my anger, mix it with making music. And as his own musical taste changed, his politics began to wake up too. One day he met a political poet who encouraged him to do something positive with that anger. I met a very important person in my life. His name is Amgad Lahwagi and he met me and he said that um, I love your music so much, but why you 
why are you singing just pop songs and, and love songs? Why? And he started to show me political poems written in my language. I never had that before because there was no chance for this kind of alternative underground music to, to, to be big. Again, with this moment, it's something to, to remember the rest of my life, like first time when I was listening to words that has meanings, words that has message, that uh, there is something that this person want to say. And I was just blown up in my head. He began writing songs that actively confronted the status quo in Egypt, challenging authoritarianism and police brutality. One day he was invited to do a gig at his university. He took the new songs. His professors were in the front row. Immediately they shut down the PA system and the gig was cancelled. Nobody in that audience was expecting the directly political lyrics that Rami was singing. This just wasn't done in Egypt, a country ruled for the past 30 years by Hosni Mubarak. Egypt's autocratic president was no fan of political freedom and had presided over a culture of corruption and police brutality. But Rami had picked an interesting moment. Egyptians were starting to push back. And no wonder. Unemployment was out of control. The people who did have jobs had seen their wages plummet. And even basic food was getting too expensive to afford. For many Egyptians, enough was enough. I'm Mona Saif. I work as a researcher in cancer biology. Mona was also pretty active on Twitter, and particularly Facebook. And in 2010, she began to notice a change in tone. As well as the standard family news and cat pictures, she saw people start to talk about what was actually wrong with Egypt. She was initially reluctant to get involved. I was born while my dad was in prison, and he spent five years in prison, and he was severely tortured, and he came out, he actually became a lawyer while he was in prison, and he came out to be a, a brilliant human rights lawyer. And I think it, part of rebelling against it was deciding that I'm not going to be part of this. <laughs> but then, on the 6th of June, 2010, police officers in Alexandria, Egypt's second city, dragged a young man out of an internet cafe. His name was Khalid Said. It wasn't a hidden fact that police beat up people and tortured uh, people. But I think a lot of people back then always assumed the profile of the potential victim is different than them. So they always assumed they were older, they were from a different social class, and so on. And part of that is slightly true. Like, the police are more vicious with more underprivileged people. The, the police are more vicious with people who would be less likely to get support and so on. But when his story happened, Khal Said was a young man in Alexandria and he had a conflict with the police. It ended up with him being beaten up and, and, and like completely smashed. His face was completely smashed and tortured till he died. When Khalid's brother posted a photo of his battered corpse on the internet, the country was shocked. Everyone now felt that this type of random brutality could happen to them. A memorial page for Khaled on Facebook went viral. Something had begun. Something changed, and it sparked a lot of people my age to try and do something. I started following Khaled Said's page. Uh, on Facebook, and I started following their events. Um, if there's a protest, 
nearby I would go. Uh, I would try to cover what was happening using Twitter and to connect with more people and reach out to more people. So the ev event announcing January 25th came out from Facebook. January 25th in Egypt is also known as Police Day. It's a national holiday, if you can believe it. Their destination? Tahrir Square. Tahrir Square feels a bit like a massive traffic roundabout, but it's also one of Cairo's most symbolic places. It's at the heart of the city, close to the Nile and the location of many of Egypt's big government departments. It has also been the site of major protests and demonstrations, such as the bread riots of 1977 and the 2003 protests against the war in Iraq. It's also called Tahrir, and Tahrir means liberation. So if people set their eyes or goals on reaching something, governments usually want to prevent it, even if it doesn't make any sense. The square's not an easy place to try to stage a protest. It's close to several other large areas where the army and police can mobilize. So it's easy to surround and snuff out a protest before it even really gets going. To succeed in even reaching, let alone holding, Tahrir Square, you really need an essentially unstoppable number of people. So as Mona would discover, you need to do some coordination first. After all, revolutions don't plan themselves. On January 24th, a group of friends who were helping strategize had an announced plan of gathering points in different places in Cairo, but also had like a secret place that was not announced. Uh, it's called Nahia, where people were supposed to only tell their direct contacts and like there were certain limitations. You have to tell people you completely trust. You have to tell them face to face. You can't tell them uh, where it's supposed to be or what time over the phone and so on. And it was supposed to be like the small seed that starts the march. The route would take you to all the other announced places and end up in Tahrir. And I went and it was very funny because it's such a, a crowded and populated area with like a popular market. You, you found a lot of people, a lot of them you recognize, but they're all walking and trying to pretend like they don't know anyone around. <laughs> you look slightly excited and a bit out of place, but you know, you're trying to act cool. <laughs> the organizers wanted the meeting points to be at various residential neighborhoods, places the authorities would never suspect. There, you weren't just protected by the local residents, but you could also encourage them to join you. So by the time you come out of it, you have collected enough protesters that it's be it becomes like a snowball effect. And you would already have small gathering crowds there joining you in, in bunches. All of a sudden, Mona spotted her friend Khaled, who'd been involved in previous smaller protests against Mubarak. And Khaled was like a known voice in leading the chants in, in protests. So he was suddenly, someone took him on his shoulder and he started chanting. And all of a sudden, all of these people who were scattered around are, you know, joining and marching. And so we walked over the bridge. This is where we came in contact with the second uh, point of gathering. Only at this point did the marchers collectively realize just how big a group they were. It was incredible. <laughs> it was it was weird. It was a massive crowd. I remember when we reached Asrinil Bridge, there was like a line of police conscripts trying to yani, stop us. But we were, by that point, we were such a massive crowd 
that everyone just raised their hands up to say, we are peaceful, but we are definitely going on. And they kind of melted away. It was <laughs> and as we reach the bigger street, it becomes like a river of people. Against the odds, the protests had made it all the way to the square. On one side of the square, uh, there was uh, like the front line facing the police trucks. And so there was a b- ongoing clashes, but they were lighter than anything that came afterwards. So they were mostly with rocks and tear gas and water. And when we reached there, people started talking about staging a sit-in. People started talking about what to do. What to do? Mona wanted to be useful. She was bilingual, English and Arabic, so she had a pretty good understanding of what was happening across social media. In particular, she saw a lot of the lies coming from the government. For example, showing old videos of Tahrir Square looking empty and trying to claim that the protests had died out. So she sort of turned herself into a citizen journalist, posting about the reality in the square and encouraging others to join. What take me to Tahrir Square was the um, magnificent, wonderful, beautiful magic of what's called revolution. Something that is extremely powerful, powerful than anything else you could experience before. That is just calling you like a beautiful magnetic field and you want to hug it and you want to go with it wherever it will take you. So, with his guitar in hand, Rami left the protests that were also starting in Mansoura to head for the heart of Cairo. Immediately when I knew that, yeah, this is now means going to Cairo, going to Tahrir Square to join the people there, I just followed my heart and followed my feelings and followed this magical power and um, I would be always the happiest that I got a chance to experience a real revolution. The first three days during the fight when I was still in Mansoura, while we were fighting, people were chanting all the time. And I was chanting with them, but like after 48 hours of chanting the same things from an artistic point of view, I I, I will not say that it was getting boring, but I will say that I believed in that if I turn this magic into music, if I can take this chance and put it to melody, I'm 100% sure that this would be way more effective. When I moved to to Cairo, to Tahrir Square, the idea was in my head, especially the main three chants at that time, that was Al-Shaab, Yurid, Scott, and Nizam. People demand removal of the regime. Yasqut, Yasqut, Husni Mubarak. Down, down, Mubarak. And he leaves, we stay. And then the moment I arrived to, to the square, getting more and more inspired, I, I just get the chance to sit down with my guitar and, and add one sentence that I wrote, which is saying, it's the first sentence in the song. We're saying, Kullina eid wahda. Talabna haga wahda, irhal. We all one hand have one demand, leave. And I just managed to make like an extremely simple groove of just three basic chords with a very straight rhythm that can make the people sing together. 
Most of the protesters carried placards. They showed caricatures of Mubarak and slogans like Save Egyptian Blood and Leave or A Nation Without Torture. Rami had his guitar. The moment that I performed at Erha for the first time was in the evening of the 1st of February and I did that after the disappointing speech that Mubarak was ignoring what's happening and promising that everything going to be okay. I would never forget how people were so disappointed, me as well. And Tah, my friend that was with me, he was the one like saying, like, Rami, do something about it. And Erhal was ready at this moment. And I can say that there was like maybe 100,000 people in the square. Immediately when I started to sing Erhal, like people knew the song because the, the words are coming from the chants, coming from them. To see how a song can just change the mood, change the atmosphere, and turning the disappointment to like um, a victory feeling. Like, yeah, we hear, we are like this, we sound like this, we can make anything if we sound like this. The kind of the energy that you're receiving from the people and being able to give it back and receive it again and give it back and receive it again. I feel that I'm the, the most powerful body on, on the planet at this moment. And that was the feeling. Seeing people from different backgrounds, people that would never have a chance in Egypt to meet, to sit down and talk, have any conversation, or even exist in the same place in the same moment. But to see them all as one human being, as one sound, singing together, this was the best experience ever. This is exactly the moment of Erhal. I'm so glad that it was documented. There were so many stages, so every, like, few hundred meters, you'd find a small stage with a microphone that people created like checkpoints to try and control like, what's coming in and what's coming out. It was just a mix of feeling a sense of ownership, but also feeling a certain kind of power and authority. So at times this was a positive reflection of what was happening, and at times it wasn't a positive reflection because it was everyone was kind of rediscovering a new power dynamic and a new structure they were in. For the first time in decades, the police were no longer in control. It's hard to overstate just what a huge psychological impact that made. It felt amazing when we knew that there is no police in the streets. When the police disappeared and how the people started to, to take over this job themselves and everybody was just trying to make groups that each group will protect their own neighborhood. And, and it was working. It was the, the real feeling of freedom for the first time. Shortly after midnight, heavy armor trundled into Cairo's Freedom Square. Mubarak did not like people feeling free. He sent in the army. They placed snipers on rooftops, shot at the crowd with live ammunition, and used vehicles to run them over. Hundreds were killed. But the crowd in Tahrir Square refused to leave. Yesterday, they, they hit us with rocks and they shot us with guns. I had a rock in my head, but I am okay. 
No human being living in Egypt could even dream that Mubarak is resigning. Okay, we were believing in us, in, in ourselves, in the human power, especially after experiencing what was going on in the square. But in the same time, there was, there was a denial in our heads, like it was so far from reality. 18 days after Mona and her friends had first begun their sit-in, Rami was performing on the main stage as usual when the stage manager interrupted him. He was carrying a portable radio. They held it up to the microphone. It was news about Mubarak. And suddenly the guy resigned. And, and, then, and then people went crazy and, and everybody was super, super happy and like... I was on the stage having my guitar still on me. And then when the people calmed down a little bit from the celebration, everybody was looking at me, like, continue singing. And then, oops, like, what to do now? I was singing stuff <laughs> to make him resign. What, what to say? Because the words doesn't fit the moment. I asked for a pen and paper, and I, I just took steps back, and I was sitting down on the stage next to the speakers, hiding a little bit and try to gain some time to create something. And then I worked on Erhal and I changed the words that he already left and calling for a civilian system, not a military system. And then I went back to the, to the mic and when I started to sing the new version of Erhal, it was crazy and people were so happy. When the celebrations finally died down, many of the protesters left the square. Sadly saying now, this was our biggest mistake, that we left the streets immediately when he resigned. And we thought that this is the victory, we made it, we took the dictator down. We were so naive, thinking that that's it. Two days after Mubarak stepped down, the military took control. These low passes by Egyptian F-16s did feel intimidatory. Some of the protesters arranged a second sit-in. But compared to the 300,000 who'd occupied the square the first time around, only 3,000 showed up. The 9th of March. It's a huge, important day. I can just simply say that I got tortured so badly by the army. I wasn't the only one. We were about 200 people that were arrested and being taken to the Egyptian museum. And I was treated a little bit in a special way because they, they knew me because of the songs and they were calling me Rami, they were calling me by name. Yeah, they, they were so brutal without, without details. I felt that I was almost dying that day. I was fainting out and this was happening when there was a special force army officer that was jumping on my head with his military boots for, for, for a period of time. I just he heard my, my inner sound telling to me like, um, no, Rami, not now. Don't let them kill you. And immediately I, I got my conscience back and, and the day went on. Rami had never been tortured before. It was beyond horrific. He tried to focus on one thing. He wouldn't cry out. 
they were all the time wanna feed their evil soul and their sickness by wanting to hearing screams and cryings and and somehow this was like a, what they were trying to feed themselves with and um, in my fight in this day I did all my best to stay silent the whole eight hours silence sometimes could be the most powerful sound ever in the years since the noise of the protests the singing the chanting the roar of thousands of egyptians and millions across the arab world has largely fallen silent in egypt the military refused to give up power then came rigged elections, and now they're ruled by another army officer, Abdul Fattah el-Sisi. President Sisi has concentrated all of the power in his military. He's arrested many of the protesters, who are now tortured like Rami was. Journalism like Mona's has now essentially become a crime. Having been the symbol of freedom, for Mona, Tahrir Square is now tainted. So my relationship with the city has changed drastically over the years. Now, um, I mostly avoid downtown unless I have to. It's not just because it's a place where a lot of like bloody events and bloody memories happened, but it's also because the way it is now, it always has police trucks on the side and it's completely transformed. It's just so alienating. It's so different than, than the kind of image one drew in his mind back in 2011 when we were, you know, imagining the future. Now, because we have to deal with the tension of friends and close person to ours on like a weekly basis and forced disappearances news are now a recurrent thing. Every two days we, we hear of a new person who was abducted by state security and nobody knows where he is. Death sentences are on the rise and some of them are carried out. Uh, military trials, I've been active against military trials since February 2011 and I have never felt as helpless as I have felt in the past two years. I was hesitant to do this interview because 2011 is really where I felt most hopeful in my life and where I felt the most sense of ownership and belonging here. And I feel so detached from these feelings right now. I fear sometimes that I would superimpose the darkness I, I carry now on something that was, you know, so full of light and so different. Rami's song, Irhal, is in the great tradition of protest songs, like Blown in the Wind. But while Rami was the voice of the revolution in Egypt, Egypt is no longer his home. He left, initially to avoid military service with the very army that had tortured him. But he always intended to return. When I became 30 and it was time to prepare myself to go back home, even when everybody was saying, you're an idiot to think about coming back. This is too risky and you shouldn't. And then the Egyptian government um, they cancelled my passport. They said there was no reasons. Like Mona, he's now shut out from the city he once claimed as his own. Leaving Egypt is the only thing I didn't want to do. Now, 
I'm almost five years living in Sweden and Finland. I'm, I'm so sad to say that uh, um, I am in exile at the moment, and this is the word that I was 100% against, and I didn't want people even to say that Rami is in exile. But I am at the moment because I can't go back home now, and I'm counting days for the moment that I will go back home. Reverberate is created and presented by me, Chris Michael. The producers of this episode were Ian Chambers and Rose Delirebeedy. The executive producer is Peter Sale, and the lead producer for Guardian Podcasts is Max Sanderson. Original music and sound design is by Pascal Wise. And music rights clearance was by Tony Orkadesh of Torchlight Music. The development executive producers were Shanita Scotland and Catherine Godfrey. Thanks for listening.